Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special returning guest, uh, Anuj Abral. Anuj was previously uh, Chief of Staff at Atrium with Justin Kahn and uh, now is started uh, Witty Wealth. Uh, Anuj, welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to be here. It's been a year. Yes, uh, absolutely. So, so Anuj, but by way of introduction, uh, why don't you talk about what Witty Wealth is and what you're trying to uh, accomplish with it. Obviously, before you came on, we did an episode with Keith Raboy. We did an episode with Justin Kahn. We did this brief deep dive on evaluating markets. And now you're sort of taking that same sort of analytical rigor, uh, tech, uh, public uh, tech investing and, and public investing more broadly. What, why don't you talk about what, what you're trying to achieve? Yeah. So Witty Wealth is a community that helps tech stock investors build confidence in their own abilities. So for me, why did I want to do this? So we went on this deep dive for uh, venture capital, how to evaluate startups, like what makes, what differentiates, you know, the ones that are going to be great versus the ones that aren't. And I looked at like tech stock investing, like I would just hobbies, like be looking at these stocks all the time. And I just want to understand, can I play venture capital in the public markets? Like what are the things that are actually worth paying attention to now versus over the arc of time? And I just felt like, nothing out there was really helping me. Either stuff was like really boring and dry and overly complicated or things like didn't necessarily explain stuff well uh, and they were like too high level. So I wanted to do something that just uh, for me or like at least for someone like me who is sort of a futurist, likes tech stocks and wants to be educated in the bets that they make. Totally. What are some of the topics you've, uh, you've gone deep on early in the Witty Wealth journey? Yeah. For me, the one that we're going to get into is a lot about this thing called a special purpose acquisition company or corporation or fuck. I need to probably edit that out. But uh, for me, the first one is SPACs, which is what we're going to get into. Uh, but then I've been doing a lot of like bull case, bear cases on uh, at least at a high level on you know different types of companies. So like Zoom, Slack, Peloton. And now starting this week or starting Monday uh, after we record this, I'm going to do an experiment where I'm trying to make investing a multiplayer game. So we're going to like deep dive on a certain company, do you know bull case, bear case, and then sort of figure out as a community what do we want to invest in, and then I have a pot of money that we're just going to invest in it and see how it goes over time, and uh, pay attention to it. That's also awesome. it is interesting to see just how sort of Robin Hood activity and just you know, public stock investing activity has surged, especially among young people over you know sort of it seems since COVID. How do you explain that? Yeah, um, I think a mix of things. One is you get the stimulus check from the government. Two, there's no sports going on, so there's nothing for people to bet on. Uh, or they're just like no, nothing for people to entertain themselves. So you're sitting around all day, you have this chunk of change. The thing that changes all the time is the markets, at least from you know 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. So what else is there to do, which is really cool. And things are like very volatile. So things are changing all the time. So you have this constant, constant, you know, uh, entertainment going on or things to talk about or things to react to, which just gives you dopamine hits, you know, that compound. Yeah. Yeah. And Dave Portnoy, the Barstool founder seems to have just hit a cultural resonance around, yeah, I guess making stock investing like sports with sort of the, all the, you know, competition, but also like silliness that, that is involved there. 
he is, yes, definitely like been the symbol of this whole like change. Yeah. Whereas obviously Wall Street Bets was taking off, but he's essentially Wall Street Bets personified. And I guess for people listening who may or may not know Dave Portnoy, what he's been doing is he live streams his day trading uh, every day. And he essentially just does like random one. He like boasts himself like I'm better than Warren Buffett because it's been this crazy bull market and his returns have actually been better than Warren Buffett in this short period of time. But two, he even just does like crazy stuff. So at one point in time, he has saying stocks only go up. So he was at one point in time, like just pulling Scrabble letters out of a bag <laughs> and trading on those. And I think he actually did well. So um, and he's definitely made it entertaining. He's been the personality that makes everything entertaining. Did he coin stonks or what are stonks? Uh, stonks is, is just like a meme of stocks. Yeah. I think it actually didn't necessarily come across as like a, a meme about stocks. It was just like, oh, I did something educated. And like, you know, you're maybe you weren't necessarily educated, but it's just like, oh, look at me. I know stonks. And then it's like this guy who's dressed up in a suit. But yeah, stonks is, um, yeah, essentially become like this meme that's been associated now with all this parody of craziness. Yeah. Let's, let's do a deep dive on SPACs and then we'll return to some other topics here. For people who may not be familiar, when you do this sort of explain like a five version of, of, of SPACs and, 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 and why they matter. Yeah. So a SPAC is a new type of company or a blank check company that's essentially a publicly listed pool of money. And their goal is to buy a company or merge or acquire a business within 18 to 24 months. So think about it like they're a blank check search fund in a way. And before they buy the company, they they go public themselves. So really it's just like a sponsor who's attached, who's like, hey, Eric, you have a SPAC. You're essentially this publicly listed pool of money now on the stock market. And then you want to buy something, you know, within 18 to 24 months. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, the main part. What's innovative here or, or what, what what's important about it or what are the implications of it? Yeah, so with a SPAC, I guess there's two main things. One, the types of companies that a SPAC can buy, uh, because they essentially go through public firsthand, then the companies that they buy can be more forward-looking. Essentially, these are businesses that uh, will have that are expected to have revenues in the future, but they might not have revenues right now. So they're very forward-looking type businesses, uh, which is one. And then two, what's interesting is then you as an investor or a casual investor can uh, invest in these companies in the public markets. Whereas before, you know, only if you're a venture capitalist or angel investor, you had access to these types of deals when they were private companies, could you get the opportunity to invest before they necessarily grow, grew or popped off. Like what, what is the, talk about the alternative to, to SPACs and then maybe we can get into sort of the, the pros and cons or the debates that we're having between them. Yeah. So when you say pros or cons, um, I guess I'm curious from like what uh, point of view or are you thinking about? Yeah. Just the various different st- stakeholders. They're just sort of the pro-SPAC argument and the anti-SPAC argument. Yeah. So uh, I ended up doing a couple articles on SPACs the past week because I myself was just trying to understand like what is, uh, you know, what are they? What what do they mean? What do they mean for me as an investor? And the SPACs are pretty interesting because from uh, I think March to May of this past, of this of 2020, actually more SPACs IPO'd than a traditional company IPO. Um and I think the reason why it comes down to it's better on a couple different dimensions for each of the main stakeholders. So I'm just, I can give a, you know, maybe a two to five minute spiel on, you know, what the takeaways are. But Please. if you're a, if you're a SPAC, essentially you are this 
uh, I guess there's three main stakeholders, right? One is you're the, the, this sponsoring investor who initially brings this blank check pool of money to the table, right? And if you're them, essentially what they do is they, when they go public, that a bunch of different other investors like you and me could invest into this SPAC. So it gives the SPAC more money to buy bigger companies. So it gives the sponsoring investor more leverage. So for example, it's sort of like an angel syndicate, but public in a way. And the only downside is say they don't find a company within the 18 to 24 months, or they're, the company that you want to acquire, it has to be voted through by your shareholders. If that doesn't get voted through, you just get your money back. So it's essentially, you're just parking your money in a bank account anyway, and there's little downside. And then also with that, uh, the upside, if you're a sponsoring investor, if the deal goes through there, you have this, you have essentially an optionality where you can get 20% of the SPAC for almost free at the end of the day. So huge upside for the investor, or at least the sponsoring investor. Um, and the second one is the bank, at least at the beginning. So to bring the SPAC public, so traditionally for an IPO, uh, or traditional IPO, you get three to 7%, the bank gets three to 7% of the amount uh, that's for sale. But for uh, a SPAC, what's pretty cool is they still get essentially at the end of the day around five and a half percent, and then plus more, at least that's what someone told me on Twitter, because uh, there's a whole associated fee. So the banks can also make out pretty well. And then the third thing, I guess most importantly, is for the company. Because I believe at the end of the day, the company is the one who's going to be able to decide. And in times like uh, what we end up seeing in like this March through May time frame, where and even now, just tons of volatility. So what you end up seeing beforehand is uh, with a traditional IPO, like for example, with WeWork, when they wanted to go public, right? Like people read in the S1, they didn't like it, they got spooked, they didn't go public. But now what's happening is like, instead of having to get buy-in of a general public, you really just need to get buy-in of the stockholder to bring you public. And when things are volatile, it's, and companies are like, okay, I can get a sure bet. I know how much money I'm going to get. I know that I'm going to go public. So rather than just negotiate with the SPAC for them to either merge or acquire with me to take myself public. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing. And then there's, there's other stuff around like you understand the price way up front versus uh, understanding on IPO day or what maybe the day before what you're going to be priced at. And then it's essentially, so you, uh, you get information up front and then the first part is quicker for, cause it's already taken care of by the SPAC before you get acquired. Yeah. And so what about people who prefer sort of a traditional uh, IPO? I guess there are pros and cons to it. Um, I think the, this is where um, I, I had this Twitter thread that ended up going on in the discussion. Um, but essentially, I think it comes down to two things. One, or at least it comes down to a couple of things. So one is mainly price. So this concept of people who are very pro-spec, they're saying like, okay, uh, when you have this IPO pop, you as the company and your shareholders, you know, your employees and your investors, you get diluted, right? That was money that was on the table that was left, uh, that you left on the table and they end up arbitraging. Because within a one day pop, if it happened, you know, 50, 100%, you know, that's just money you give away for free and in theory, no value is created. Or at least that's the perception. But on the other side, people who love the IPO are like, no, actually, you, this is part of a market making function. They support, then the IPO supports your downside risk of what you as a SPAC need to, like sometimes SPACs don't pop. Right. But as a bank, you know, they provide that support for you in the event that doesn't happen. Yeah. What's the why now for, for SPACs? 
Yeah, one is, so SPACs actually came around in like 1992. So I'm going down this big rabbit hole of SPACs and essentially like the legislation that happened around it. And before blank check companies, uh, before 1992, so actually in the late 80s, they were using like these pump and dump scams. So these blank check companies weren't necessarily on the stock market. And if you think back then, like people would just hop on the phone, they would say like, hey, I have this great opportunity. Are you in? And it'd be a largely unregulated market. And so then in 1992, uh, or over the years, a bunch of different regulations happened. And in 1992, a SPAC formed. But now, essentially, the main thing is volatility that we end up seeing. And SPACs do rise in popularity whenever we're entering like either volatile time or in like sort of a recessionary time. So after the IPO boom or the dot-com boom, this happened. Um, so like in 2003, 2004, uh, and then also post like the banking crisis, things started to pop up too. But now this is more or less a sign of volatility. And I think also we live in like this ultra low yield period of time where essentially like the bank rates are essentially zero. So why not just invest in these forward looking companies that uh, can impact the future and SPACs are a vehicle to bring them public. Did Jamath, you know, single-handedly bring this this back back, or what? What sort of his contribution? I, you had a, and you had a separate blog post about just about him generally. Yeah, um, so I'm just naturally inspired by Jamath as an investor, but so he brought the at least to tech circles, he you know sort of revived the SPAC, or he's considered as a SPAC revivalist. So in 2017, he had a SPAC which was uh, the ticker was IPOA, and Essentially, it was just trying to buy, I'm not exactly sure the exact verbiage, but buy a company that they thought could be transformed into society and also be a good business. And at the end, near the end of his two-year time frame, they end up merging with Virgin Galactic. And he was the first one uh, to do it from like a tech stock perspective. And he's considered like the, I guess, the stack leader, especially if you see anyone talk about tech and stacks on Twitter, they always just tech him. Yeah. And what is the stack? you know, have to, have to prove, do you think, or, or what are the big questions over the next few years that we'll sort of see with SPACs to see if they really sort of, you know, take off? Yeah. So SPACs, uh, for me, actually, one thing I'm concerned about SPACs, well, I think they can be a great vehicle for the future if they're used correctly. They're also used right now, uh, or less a lot of the discussion around them right now is for arbitrage opportunities. So I've been spending a lot of time in like, you know, online communities uh, that talk about SPACs and it reminds me a lot of cryptomania. So especially like shades of like fall 2017 when crypto is popping off, you had a blockchain enabled, you know, a lot of these different crypto companies to, you know, transact money or just paint a picture of the future, which is very inspiring and people wanted to buy into. And you had a whole flurry of ICOs. And I think like 80% of these ICOs, at least in 2017, were found to be scams. And with SPACs, you're starting to see some similar shades, especially I think I saw this stat like 70 over 70% of SPACs are lose money or like now trade at a less lower price post the MA that end up going through. And we talked about earlier as a sponsoring investor, you can get 20% essentially of the SPAC uh, if you know the MA goes through for free. So you have a lot of incentive to just buy something as the deadline gets near. And for me, just getting back to your question, like, what are the things to look out for? Um, I'm one, I'm curious to see, like, will there be a whole flurry of fraud that pops up? Like, it's very frothy and exciting right now. But two, how long will that last? And then three, like, will it just end up being something that's considered, like, now, like, ICO sort of has, like, this negative connotation to it. 
will that be the same case here too? Yeah. Um, that those are things I'm I'm curious to see how it all plays out. What do you think is the biggest misconception? Uh, sort of people, you know, smart people have uh, around SPACs, or what do they not fully appreciate? You think? Hmm. Good question. I think. Well, I think there's smart people in all. I guess it, I don't know if it's necessarily about smart people per se. I think it just depends on your point of view. So when I, you know, now I actually live in Michigan now, and a lot of the investors who I talk to don't necessarily get access to these types of deals, right? They want to invest in the future. They want to be like allocate some portion of their equity in, or money to buying into these companies. But why SPACs are great, why the view is great is like, I want to fund the future too. Like why do people in Silicon Valley only get access to, you know, helping support a space tourism company? Why can't I do that? So I think for a lot of America, they're excited because it gives them an opportunity or people who invest in the stock market, it gives them an opportunity essentially get access to like these VC type deals that they want to support uh, and be part of too. Yeah. I think in general, um, people who are in the industry are more critics of like, you know, these things are dangerous and like they need to be used correctly. Yeah. And um, the, you know, even before sort of SPAC mania, uh, there was, you know, a lot of conversation about the IPO and sort of how there were challenges with the IPO, you know, Bill Gurley and others, um, and they were comparing it to the direct listing. Talk about, or unpack that conversation a little bit. What, what concerns did people have uh, around the IPO uh, and how did that compare? And then unpack the, the direct listing and the pros and cons between the two. Yeah, so I can give you my point of view from my understanding, like just trying to understand what the internet says. That said, I'm not like a financial advisor or a banker, so I can't necessarily say that I'm sure someone can give a better perspective. But so I guess my understanding from what you know, Bill Gurley is critical of is they're essentially of this pop that happens. So for either he as an investor or the founder he backs or the founder's employees, you know, they essentially lose a lot of money or they lose money by having this pop occur. Instead of, because uh, what happens is they sell their shares to the bank at a certain price. And then when the pop happens, essentially like the bank, whoever the bank sold their shares to or what they did with their shares now trade instantly higher, you know, a day or two later. So it's not necessarily an efficient function for the original sale, sell, uh, sale of shares. So he's very excited about a direct listing, which is essentially like an auction, right? Where someone who like literally whoever is willing to pay the highest price is going to, or, you know, it's a more efficient way of pricing. And in theory, you know, his clients will get the most accurate price or his founders will get the most accurate price or even the highest price when they decide to go public. How do you compare, okay, let's, let's compare the direct listing and, and the SPAC. Yeah, so a direct listing, the main thing about that is like you as a company, essentially you're selling your own shares or like your, your employees or whoever has shares, they can sell them. You're not necessarily raising new capital for your business, right? Versus an IPO you are and in the SPAC you're getting M&A, which essentially you're, you're uh, acquiring new capital as well. So in theory, I guess I can lay on a spectrum. So in terms of like uh, how I view it, the most efficient pricing is in theory, this direct listing. If you think about it, like all the way on the left. Uh, and then in the middle, you have the SPAC. And why I guess some people view it's more efficient is because it's a direct negotiation that the company has to do with their acquirer. Uh, and then it's very clear and transparent in terms of what the price is going to be. And you know that upfront before you have to go through this whole process. And then the far right is what's 
I guess what you would end up saying being, um, you know, an IPO where you, the company have less control over what the price is going to be. And then it happens, pricing happens at the very end when you're sort of already in this process and you're already set to go public. With this back mania, why is it so controversial? Uh, what are people fighting about on the internet? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think there's two camps. So you have like the, uh, probably like the Finn Twitter camp, who is more like talking about whether or not this is, you know, better than an IPO or not. And then you have another camp, which is more like these casual investors who are, who you probably like, who maybe are there in a Facebook group and they post like, what should I buy today? You know, that type of uh, investor who's more of a pure speculator or better, or they don't necessarily have access to financial advice. And, and I'm not financial advice either, but essentially they're just like, they, they fight about like whether or not this is fraud. So for example, with a SPAC, I guess with the ladder camp, with a SPAC, you're buying something that's saying like, oh, I'm going to have revenues of this much in 2024, or like, you know, a couple of years from now. So it's just like a pure story. So think about it like when you're angel investing, or you're you know investing at like a seed or a series A, you're buying into like the vision and the picture of the company, right? And that's what helps you get very excited. Versus when you're typically you're a public investor, you already or like as you as the company evolves and matures, there's actual data that you can um, evaluate a company on, right? Versus you know if you're a later stage or like now SPACs, they're like you can essentially the only types of like criteria you can evaluate a company on is its story. So essentially you're forced to play, you know, uh, VC in the public market here. Totally. What did Alex Rampel and Chathan or Eric Vishra from Benchmark, can you unpack their argument that they had on Twitter the other day? Yeah. Um, so they're much smarter than me, but <laughs> the, from my understanding, so Alex, he is saying that just because an IPO pops doesn't necessarily mean that it was inefficiently priced. So for example, say you, if you think about it in terms of supply and demand, when and a company needs to go public, a lot of people actually don't wanna sell their shares. And so there's a limited amount of supply or which is called like uh, the float. And what, uh, or that's just like the number of shares essentially available for trade. And just because there's at the initial, uh, you know, IPO, just because there's a little amount, there's like people are very excited, you know, there's a lot of demand and there's not as much supply. So there's naturally going to be, you know, a high price and a lower quantity. And what he's saying, just because that's the case in the short term, doesn't necessarily mean that's going to happen over the, the arc of history. At least that's my understanding from his tweets. And then what I believe Eric is saying, well, that um, may be the case or may not be the case. I think it's sort of like people are talking like counterfactual, so it's not exactly clear. But essentially, I think what he's saying is that just that may, whether or not that's the case, that isn't necessarily an efficient way of pricing things. It's interesting. I mean, I feel like a couple of years ago we were having sort of this debate or you know argument over whether companies should go public sooner versus later, and now it, it seems the controversy is when they do go public, what is the vehicle by which which they do so? Is that a yeah? Do you think that debate over go public sooner versus later has been like, it's been decidedly one that you should, you know, companies are just going public later and not, not thinking about going it sooner. Uh, we also see things like Eric Reese's long-term stock exchange, you know, try to make it easier for companies to, to do that such that they want to go public sooner. How, how do you think about that? Yeah. In terms of going public or not, I think for me, it's more just about personal preference. I think 
I think from at least from my understanding of why people want companies to go public sooner, at least like why I think I've seen like Bill Gurley tweet about why he wants companies to go public sooner is because it forces you to be honest, like about because you have this quarterly reporting, right? So I think it forces you to be honest about, you know, what, how your business is, how healthy your business is now, like what's the direction that you're going into things versus if you are private for longer, you can largely, it's more of like a, you, you're more accountable just in general to like the VCs on your board or, you know, your bigger investors. So maybe that's, they require you to be honest or not, but I think it's, uh, that's more of like a one-to-one conversation. And then two, you also have like this general, I think like more people who take like the wealth inequality uh, thesis, they're saying like, okay, if you're going, if you're saying private for longer, that means a lot of the growth is not necessarily being captured by the everyday, you know, uh, American investor is largely going to a venture capitalist who is funding these companies as they grow. You could imagine a private company say, hey, we're not going to necessarily go public, but we are going to have quarterly reporting. That'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure what long-term stock exchange is up to, but that could be something as well. Yeah. Let's say you're talking to a, a founder in your portfolio who's, who's about to go public. Yeah, they're choosing between a SPAC, direct listing, or, or IPO. What would you advise them? Or how, would, how, would, how should they think about it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, not if a financial advisor. I'm also not an investment banker, but I think I can lay out like the pro-con case for each of the three options. So from my understanding... If you're like a, a healthy like business, or if you're a business that uh, doesn't necessarily need to raise outside of capital, that's great for the direct listing, right? So you see that with Slack, you see that with Spotify per se. And if you are a business who is, you have like some sort of operating history already, and or I guess maybe I'll go to the second one. Uh, so that's what a direct listing is. If you're a business that's like, you want to go public, but you don't necessarily have like uh, previous operating history as much and your business is more focused on the future. So for example, like if you're like Nikola trucks and your trucks aren't going to be out for another five years, but you think going public can be a great source of capital and a good decision for you, then going via SPAC is a, is a route to go. Right. And then I'd say the latter, there's probably a whole host of reasons in terms of like IPOs, uh, why they're, you know, they're more traditional model. I think there's a reason why that's the case. But I guess in this example, I'll probably assume that like that's the catch-all for not wanting to go SPAC or direct listing route. Yeah. Say, say more about what separates the good you know, SPACs that perform well versus ones that, that don't. What is sort of the criteria? Yeah. So uh, with a SPAC, essentially when you're like this blank check, publicly listed pool of money, all you have attached to it is a spot. All you have is essentially the money and the sponsoring investor. So the money is money, you know, it's, it's a commodity at this case, at this point in time. But so really what you're doing is you're betting, can this sponsoring investor like buy a great company that essentially is going to make the value of this money grow, right? So essentially you're just investing in the sponsoring investor. And I did like a quick, you know, analysis essentially on like there's where the SPACs have done the most well on three of them so far, they end up buying so one was Chamath's with uh, his IPOA ended up like merging with um, Virgin Galactic. Second was uh, this one called like Vecto IQ and they ended up purchasing or merging with uh, Nikola Trucks. And the last one was like Diamond Eagle and they ended up uh, buying or merging with DraftKings. And all three of them, 
essentially beforehand, the only thing that you could really rely on was the credibility of the sponsoring investor. And I think there's like three things that you want to look into. One, do they have essentially experience in the space or like what the SPAC is exploring and like what types of companies they want to buy? Two, do they have, does the sponsoring investor have some sort of history in terms of like operating these companies? And then three, you know, do they have a history of like financing or raising money beforehand? So because essentially they're, they're a capital allocator and you need to figure out, are they going to be a good capital allocator? And those are like just a couple rules of thumb that can be used to be differentiate whether or not someone's credible who's a sponsoring investor. And what do you expect to write more about in the future uh, on this topic? Where's your curiosity take, taking you next? Yeah, in terms of SPACs, I think for me at like a high level, I have an understanding of what's going on, but there's a lot of mechanics. Like for example, like there's this Twitter debate that ended up happening in my thread. And I'm curious as to like understanding the mechanics, why, like why are things counterintuitive? Like for example, like Alex, he's saying, just because there's a pop doesn't necessarily mean it's inefficient. And I think that's curious to understand why. Um, I think SPACs, I'm sure as like, for example, when I see like crypto, how it evolved, um, you obviously had a lot of reporting how like things didn't necessarily work out, but there's probably stuff that did work out really well. And I'm just curious as to maybe there's certain avenues of where SPACs are, are better or like there's certain things that, so for example, I guess, so for me, where do I want to take my writing, at least in terms of SPACs? One is I want to understand the mechanics of things. So for example, like Alex in my Twitter thread, he was saying, just because things are popping doesn't necessarily mean that it's an inefficient market. So I'm curious to understand why. Two, I think there are certain areas that are more interesting or like where SPACs can be more applied. So for example, like electric vehicles, right? Like Tesla, there's a lot of hype for Tesla right now. And then in turn, you have a couple like electric vehicle SPACs popping up. So you had Nikola with trucks and you even have one that just got recently announced, like Apollo was, uh, their SPAC was like merging or acquiring with Fisker, the electric car company from like the early 2013s. But that's a function of ESG investing, which essentially is like, we need to make sure our capital is going towards things that are you know, environmentally friendly. And I think that could be a case where you end up seeing a lot of money flooding into SPACs, specifically going into, the, into like that type of investing. So I'm curious to see how long that, those trends will play out. Let's uh, segue into other you know, broader topics you've, you've, you've written about on, on public investing. Yeah. So let's go, let's go back to Chamath. What do you, why do you really admire him as an investor? And what, what do you think you know, he has unique insight on or, or superpower? Yes. Um, so Chamath, I think, in general, is able to do two things, uh, at least in terms of his demeanor and how he communicates. So one, he's able to sort of like call it, or as like a, a retail investor, you can see that he calls it for what it is. So he has his like unique, like bold, polarizing take. So for example... Like he uh, talked about like VC being a Ponzi scheme, right? <laughs> Which is sort of like, you, I mean, he was a VC at the time and essentially just called out his own entire industry. And then it was like, screw this. I'm not going to be a VC anymore, right? I am going to be, you know, this like broader, I'm going to be like a play the whole game. Two, uh, what I like about him is that the way he's able to communicate things. So for example, he just like straightened to the point. There was something that got very popular uh, around the time when like he was talking about should airlines get bailed out? And he essentially was like directly, no, versus when you hear other investors are, you know, it's like very pandering and, you know, they try and bring up, you know, all these different types of cases when he just gets straight to the point. He speaks in a way that I feel like the average person can understand. He's been able to like break through. Or so I feel like other like investing figures. So for example, on like one end, you know, like Warren Buffett, who's you know very smart, but naturally because he, the way he thinks it 
comes across like very nuanced and detailed and layered, but to like the average person doesn't necessarily, it's like sort of boring and dry. And then the other end, we talk about Dave Portnoy, who's like very brash, sort of makes a mockery of things. And that's like more or less like what the average person understands, but you can sort of see through it. They're like, okay, this is, you know, once this, you know, party stops, he's going to probably go back to sports betting or something. He's going to get washed out. Whereas you feel like Chamath, he has like the intellectual capability of, you know, Buffett, but he has this ability to speak and demeanor like Portnoy. Yeah. And when he was talking about VC Ponzi scheme, his, his argument, if I understand it correctly, was that too much VC money is being used to prop up basically, you know, pay for Facebook and, and Google advertising. Yeah, I think it, that's one part. So essentially, uh, I think the main thing is what is the incentive of the venture capitalist? At least is his, uh, at least my interpretation of what he said. And it's like, my goal is to just raise another fund and raise a bigger fund. So what does that mean? Okay, I essentially want, I'm going to give this company money and I need them to quickly show that they're growing in value because then I can raise, uh, so then they can raise money at a higher valuation. And then in theory, then I can go to my LPs and say, look, these companies are doing great. So let me, like, let me get a markup and I can raise, or sorry, then let me raise like an even bigger fund. And then as a venture capitalist, like, your fee structure, the way you're making money is, I guess the stereotypical was like two and 20. So 2% of the uh, money that's under capital and 20% of the profits. So you can at least for sure make, if you can grow the size of that fund, your 2% is essentially becoming, you know, growth bigger and bigger each year. So then you have people who are essentially just trading off startups to each other. And in terms of like just backing each other's startups in a way that they can then go sell markups or get markups and sell it to their LPs to raise bigger and bigger funds. Chamath is one of the bigger investors in Slack. Let's talk about Slack. You wrote about sort of the bull and, and bear case there. Yeah. So Slack is a, right now it's also like a very polarizing company on uh, Finn Twitter. And I think the reason why is interesting. So, you know, you and me, like I'm the on-deck Slack uh, and I see a lot of value in Slack and I've used it at all the different startups that I've worked at. And the question is, can they become a, you know, big time company? And in terms of bull case, uh, one is like their, their product is amazing, right? Like everyone who uses their product loves it. They don't, they have great like churn numbers and there's a, a form of lock-in. And the question is, will they be able to beat out Microsoft, specifically Microsoft Teams? Or like there's a lot of talk is on Microsoft offers like a Slack essentially version for free. Can they overcome Microsoft's distribution advantage? And the question, that's what is the, like the debate hinges on. Can they do that? Yeah, totally. What are other, uh, any other companies you've done the bull, bull bear? Did you do Tesla? Uh, we haven't done Tesla. I've tried to stick to companies that are at least initially like, what's my sweet spot, right? It's um, companies I think have like IPO'd within the last five years and are largely like a singular product. So that's been Slack, uh, it's been Peloton, and then that's also been Zoom, are okay. the three that I've done so far. Let's do Peloton and then Zoom. Yeah, Peloton, uh, I think on all of these, I know we talked a little bit about like moats beforehand, not in this podcast, but we talked about it with uh, Keith. And essentially with Peloton, you have this great brand, you have this cult. But the question is, over time, can you like either one, grow this cult, or two, can you extract more value from this cult, right? Full case for Peloton is essentially, they built a great brand. Uh, they're essentially close to profitable, and then three, they have the, this ability where they 
they have opportunity to like upsell into different products once you already have a Peloton cycle. But then two, the bear case is what's the moat? So you have this brand and you have this cult, but there's questions on can you grow this uh, existing you know group of people you have? But two, where's the lock-in? So for example, like we talked about in our markets piece, like brand is essentially like a weak moat, but can you build a stronger moat, which is around like maybe social or network effects? Like for example, like uh, if I was cycling, like now we're stuck inside and we used to work out together. We didn't, but you know, if we did in this example, why can't I use some sort of like social pro- ability to like work out with you or what are the lack of social features? And from my understanding, my perception is that Slack or uh, Peloton has largely just dropped this, these social features uh, and hadn't focused on it. So as an investor, you're like, okay, will this company be, will it endure over time? Totally. And what's the next one you're going to do? The next one I'm going to do is TBD. I'm working with a community. We're figuring out what's the company that we're actually going to do. Instead of just doing like this one day bull bear case, and we're actually going to do a longer, maybe it's like a two week type of thing okay. where every day we go in depth. We try and make investing a team sport. So maybe it's, you know, I like lay, like here's the initial like high level bull bear case. People can go deep on saying like, hey, here's why I think the, the bull case is. People can go deep saying, here's why I think the bear case is. We'll interview people who have like extreme opinions on either side. Yeah. And then uh, at the end of the day, you know, I have this money. I'm just going to apply towards the decision and other people can apply their own money too, if they want. Obviously they should talk to a financial advisor, but, and then we're just going to invest or I'm going to invest some money and see where it goes on whatever position we take. And you had a couple of blog posts on zoom, right? Yes. Uh, so I did two blog posts on zoom. So I guess in short, the bull case on zoom is naturally, they have an amazing product. It's all similar to Slack, right? But, and the, the main bear case is what's the moat or like, can they easily be wiped away? And so for example, during uh, COVID, essentially a lot of companies need to, instead of like actively evaluating what are what's the right tool for me to use for my conferencing software, they're just like, okay, Zoom, we already know Zoom, let's just buy it, we, we're working remotely, let's like not even think about it right now. So there's, I think, two things that are going on. One is, can you, will companies essentially reevaluate, you know, what they've bought? Because uh, there's not as much like lock-in essentially for Zoom. And then two, the question that I guess also for Zoom is then what's the moat? And a lot of the talk, from my understanding from the moat, is it's just like a crazy hard technology to build. The question is, can someone else, competitor, build something that's good enough and that already has distribution and beat Zoom out? And then also as an investor, the question is like, you know, how much growth is left and can it justify its valuation? You also wrote a post on, on robo-advisors. And uh, why don't you talk about uh, that? Yeah, so robo-advisors, it's more of like a raw thought. So with Witty, um, it's more just trying to get people to talk about, you know, stocks and make it a multiplayer game. So a lot of the things that I end up saying are just, you know, more at a high level and essentially casual riffs as if you would have a conversation with like a buddy, you know, when you're just hanging out. And the last one on robo-advisors. So whenever I talk to people, I, so I did like 50 conversations this past month, like in-depth with people who, who read Witty. And I you know, want to understand what's like their investing goals. What's their approach? Like what's their problems? And one of the things that I heard anecdotally was like, when they talk about how I, you know, I put part of my money in stocks. I put part of my money in index funds. I use a robo-advisor for my index funds, but I hate my robo-advisor. And I wanted to understand why. And for me, I use a robo-advisor. I, you know, I signed up for Wealthfront like five years ago. And 
it's sort of like the product is built for you to sort of just like set it and forget it, right? Which is great in that aspect. And I haven't checked my wallet in a long time. And I, uh, I realized in hindsight, you know, that ignorance was bliss. So with Wealthfront, uh, or people particularly who use Wealthfront, and they, a lot of my base do because Wealthfront naturally targets, you know, tech savvy millennials, but is first off is like returns. So Wealthfront, if you have over $100,000 in savings in Wealthfront, they automatically put your money into this thing called like a risk parity fund, or they put 20% of your money into a risk parity fund. And this is just, it's naturally designed, like people at Wealthfront are smart, right? And they want it to like smoothen your returns in terms of volatility. But, you know, in the past few months, or like in, in 2020, things have been like very volatile. And their fund actually has been, has like a negative like 13 or 15 or somewhere in that range uh, percent return, right? And uh, as of now, like the market is essentially flat. And the question is, okay, you know, why is this, you know, not doing well? And for me, I'm sitting on like an, at least year to date is a minus four and a half percent loss or almost 5% loss on my wealth fund. So uh, one is returns. People are just like, why are my returns much lower? Two, if you think about th- what was the initial pitch of Wealthfront, you know, in like uh, in mid 2015, they're like, why do you want to use a robo advisor? It's largely like, okay, passive investing. So they'll put your money in index funds. You'll get market level returns. And, you know, it's like <laughs> a lot of times like the pitch or like my understanding of the pitch is like, you're going to lose money by trying to pick stocks, right? So why not just put your money in index funds? And part of it is like, okay, now this risk parity fund is like they're actively investing or like people who are the customers I talk to, they view the risk parity fund as something that's actively investing. Wolfman claims it's not a form of investing. And so it's a, users think it's like a loss of trust or it's like it, this breaks the consumer promise that I initially saw. Um, and then third, it's my, uh, it's sort of like largely dehumanizing. Like my, the, the people who, follow witty they love to pick stocks they believe in themselves and like they want to become great investors so naturally like with a robo advisor you're putting yourself into a box or like they want to understand your risk tolerance score and wealth rent puts you on a score of zero to ten and then they invest for you so for someone who wants to be unique and wants to invest for themselves naturally like that mo opposes what you're who you are so it's largely people view as dehumanizing but overall, I think like part of Wealthfront, like I'm still a customer and I think a diversified strategy is important. Uh, but that's just like a raw thought that I felt like people were talking about or like kept bringing up to me as something I wanted to surface. Yeah, it seems that we've been having this broader debate over active versus passive for, for a long time, both on like a personal level and institutional level. Uh, do, you, do you have a take on, on, on that debate more, more broadly? Yeah, I mean, I do believe that like if you want to <laughs> maximize your returns in terms of amount of effort you do is invest in index funds. Like that's my interpretation of like the literature I read. And obviously again, I'm not a financial advisor, but there's an element too that I feel like people that at least people that like me and you know people that read witty is that they like to pick stocks. You know, it's whether or not they can get better or not better. Like the goal is to like, let's achieve returns that are in line with the market, but it's something that's, you know, provides like we talked about earlier on, like why is there so much activity in the market? It provides like your curiosity. It's something to do. It's something to talk about. So uh, I think it depends on what your goals are. Should indicate whether or not what approach you should take. We've been talking a lot about public investing. I want to spend a few minutes to talk about uh, private investing. 
we did, but, but you know, largely under your leadership, this sort of deep dive la- last year on on evaluating markets. And it's called it's called the Founder's Guide to Evaluating Markets. But of course, you know, there are implications for for private investors as well. What, why don't you talk about some of the uh, the learnings there and how that influenced uh, how you think about startup investing? Yeah, no, this is a good good retro. Uh, maybe we uh, it's overdue, but from I think the point of view that we we portrayed is as an investor or like if you're a founder or you're an investor, there's, especially in the private markets, there's orders of magnitude level returns you can get that are differently, right? So if you think about people who are, uh, so for example, Facebook, you know, you're returning multiple thousands of dollars on your initial investment versus something where like, you know, I was involved in Atrium and we, we crashed and burned and we didn't return money to, like we didn't return multiples of money to our investors. So largely the debate is how do you differentiate between startups that like before you invest or before you start one of these companies, how are you going to be able to differentiate between these types of opportunities and the common like things that people talk about is like market product or team. Those are three different buckets that consist of a business. You know, what market are you operating? What's the products that you're building or who are the team or the founders that you're going after? And essentially what we, you know, end up like from our research and our point of view, like we were like, okay, market is the most important thing. Like you can have a, like a, a great market will pull the product out of the uh, team or sorry, pull the, pull the product out of the business. And, you know, if you have a great market, it takes off like from an investor point of view, investors, uh, I think, I'm not sure who end up saying this, but they're like, you can always replace the team. You can't necessarily um, later on change who, like what market you're operating in. Uh, and then we get we end up going into a ton of criteria. I think the the post is like really good and detailed, but might be not worth me going on a diatribe about right here. Yeah, no, no, totally, definitely, uh, de- definitely uh, ch- check that out. Yeah, I, I think one of the more interesting things was, was the go to market, you know, difference between the Peter Thiel approach of sort of owning a niche and expanding from there, and the yep. uh, keep your boy approach from uh, you know just taking a a big trillion dollar market, it's sort of all yep. <laughs> I'm I'm curious actually because you've been you know you've been private investing ever since we posted. I'm curious has that affected the way you think about opportunities uh, that you you know uh, evaluate? I, I, yeah, I think one of the ways is being able to just identify you know when a company is taking the Peter Thiel approach and trying to own a niche and expand it versus uh, when they're taking the the Keith for Boy approach and knowing on, on the Keith for Boy approach you know there's a whole criteria that that comes with that one of which is their ability to raise capital. Yep. And they're going to need to be able to, to raise a lot of capital. And, and there are others that we, we, we wrote about. And in, in the Peter Thiel approach of, of expanding the niche, the, there needs to be sort of niches to expand into. Um, and I think sometimes people think, you know, that there are adjacent markets when they're really sort of totally different markets. I, I think CRM is an interesting example. Like there's great opportunities for vertical players in CRM like Viva in, in pharmaceutical companies, which built a multi-billion dollar company just <laughs> servicing that. But if you are focused on a, on a vertical that isn't big enough in CRM, but you're saying, hey, we're going to expand into different ones, you might not be able to because they're just you know so different and require you know, vertical-specific solutions. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, I still evaluate like um, angel investments uh, a lot. And it's something that I question like, that's like the main thing I now I just focus on like, do I think this is a great market opportunity? And I think I'm actually what I'm excited to do is we do these deep dives um, in public opportunities, especially if thinking about like whether or not investing in essentially trying to play VC in public markets is I guess one way to think about it. 
like what's the market that they're going after and how big can they get? And you know, all these things we talked about in the post. Yeah. You've called posts on sort of memes and, and, and stock investing and how, you know, it's just how reflexive stock investing is in general and, uh, you know, the hype cycles. And it seems that the internet and so, uh, social media and as stock investing gets more social, this would only amplify. H- how do you, how do you think about that? I guess the question is how do I think about using memes to communicate? Uh, how do you interpret the role of memes in public investing and how that will amplify or, or, or not amplify? I think so. Memes are great when you want to either one communicate something that's it could be like too long or wordy or like is just maybe hard to describe, but two they can just capture something that's like crazy going on, right? So for example, like my my friends at Morning Brew, they have this really cool tweet on like you know the Fed propping up the market. It's like a crane who's just like taking an airplane. They have like an airplane you know clamped down and the airplane just like spinning around. And around and around and around. It's like, you know, the Fed propping up the market. But I think when times just keep on getting crazier, you're going to see more memes and they're going to get more popular because everyone sort of understands like, hey, what's going on right now? It just is devoid from reality and doesn't make sense. So things are going to be a parody. Like, why not like just have fun with it and like make memes? So I think you're at least, I, I would, I guess what I'm saying is in terms of public markets, you probably see meme of, like engagement correlate with, like stock stock market volatility, I guess is my my like galaxy brain like analysis there. That that makes sense. What do you think about social money just in general? Like, wh- why isn't there like what you're doing is really interesting with the hundred k and and you know getting be fully transparent about it? Is there a platform that that can enable that? You think that's a good question. I'm n- not hundred percent sure. I think like so. One way I think about it is could this be could you build like an angelist syndicates type of thing for public markets? Where, or I guess there's two things I could I could see happening, and obviously this is like devoid from like regulations and things I need to understand. But one, could you make investing a sport, right? Like you have, like a, for example, like esports. You have like Ninja. Or you have these different figureheads. Could you make like Davy Day traders who are actually like out there talking about stocks, and maybe they build up armies of followers. And if you want to, you can invest along. Like people I know, like or I see on Twitter, they like essentially like, you know, Davy Day Trader, he, he makes a position and then like his followers, like, I want to like, understand, I want to have the same thrill and emotions of you as you can we, I, so I'm going to do the same trade type of thing. So I guess the question is like, how can you make investing more social or how do I think that's going to evolve? That could be one thing, uh, which is pretty interesting. There could even just be like, I see indirectly people have investing groups themselves. So it's largely Maybe I have like a group of friends that I went to school with, or maybe I worked with, or like there were other investors that I knew. And we're just going to go and like, we're going to talk. We just have our own text threads and we're going to like evaluate stocks. And then uh, in the most aggressive case, uh, one of my uh, friends, and he's been helping me out a lot. He was actually in on deck. Uh, I met him through on deck, which is really cool. He was like, so we have this group and we were all former like private equity or hedge fund people. We're going to make a bet. We're going to try and make this bet together. And if it works, we're going to Vegas, right? And yeah, and, it, and we're going to celebrate. And it's like partially it's about returns, but partially it's about like this is the community and like the just the feeling of like belongingness or doing something with other people. So I'm not sure yet what the solution is, but that's what I'm trying to explore and see if there's can you make you know investing fun and more than just returns. I mean, we're talking about sort of the we started this conversation by talking about how 
because we don't have sports, people, you know, need to sort of like bet on something or get excited about something. Yeah. And it's interesting to think like we have stocks for companies. I've always been curious, are we going to have like, you know, stocks for ideas or stocks for people or sort of like uh, different kinds of sort of betting markets? um, Yeah. I wonder actually if SPACs might fit your stocks for ideas type of thing, because largely they're a couple years into the future. This is what we're betting on, what we think is going to happen. We're not necessarily having, you know, revenue right now or a product that we're selling right now. Um, and you're essentially buying into the idea. So I guess SPACs could be one of those things. I know with idea markets, I saw like on, I, I, I think I saw like you engaging There's a couple of people who were trying to do this in terms of a, on a way on like the blockchain, but yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. I, I want to go to a website and see like, you know, capitalism down 20% today or like <laughs> some idea or some construct or, you know, uh, just like sentiment analysis, real-time sentiment analysis on, on things. And the only way you get that is if you have betting markets. Um, yeah. It's different from prediction markets, which are saying, you know, will X or Y happen? Um, yeah, you know, will, you know, uh, Biden win president or Trump win president? And, and then you have a de- definitive yes or no. Will the sports team win? Whereas idea markets are more just like, are mm. people going to, are people going to, buy it or sell it <laughs> gotcha no that makes sense that makes sense so essentially like you're sort of it's like a second degree you're making the trade on yeah yeah and, that'd be cool and i think the way to do it is basically to make it a collectible so like if i you know i might just let's say i'm a big fan of capitalism i might be fan of capitalism one because i, I want to be known as someone who supports it and two because i might want and better example for this might be like an artist or a type of music or an intellectual like SPAC mania, you just coins, it's meme market. You, you coin SPAC mania and you know, you want to be the first person to, to be known for that. And it's sort of imagine like Bitcoin, there's like a limited supply, but also it's like public, what order buyer you are. Like people get status from being early in Bitcoin, right? Like yeah. SPAC mania turns into this big thing, you know, and you're, you're, or even the term like ICO before it becomes a thing. Like you're like, this is going to be a big trend. I'm going to yep. buy into it first and, and show that I'm like a, uh, you know, a tastemaker in that way. Yeah, no, that's pretty cool. Actually, when when you talked about that, it sort of reminds me of Cosine, or at least the, yeah. the on-deck product. Uh, totally but it's like cool. Cosine, but for ideas. Yes, long live Cosine. It'll happen. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Anuja Jabral. Uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, uh, definitely sign up for, for, for Woody Wealth. Anuj, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you. Anytime. It's witty.substack.com and uh, feel free to subscribe and reply to any of my emails and I'll, I can talk to you there too. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.